All right, all right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. How's my 1115 service doing this morning? Yeah, 915 was louder. How you guys doing this morning? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Thanks for all of you who are showing up here in the auditorium gathering. Thank you also for those of you who are checking out our live stream and tuning into the service that way. Uh, as Keith said, um, if you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And I just got to say, guys, I am uh, just honored and privileged to be able to uh, stand here this morning and to just share a little bit with you of what God has been teaching me out of the specific passage that we're going to be taking a look at today. There's a fly up here. That's kind of weird. That's, that's random. Anyway, so, um, but uh, something else that I just kind of want to say, um, just kind of from the bottom of my heart here, is that I, I love the opportunity, whether it's on live stream or even in this space, that we can get, in, can get the chance to like carve out some time within our week to connect together as a community of people. Uh, maybe especially for those of us who are here right now, the opportunity that we get just to share life together uh, is, really, is really compelling, it's awesome, and uh, it's exciting, and I hope you feel the same way too. Uh, but uh, I think what's even um, maybe more beneficial and more encouraging for us is the reality that we don't just get a chance to be here together uh, to connect with each other. The reality is, is that we have this tremendous opportunity here, like in the next hour that we're spending together, we have an opportunity to expose our hearts and our minds and open up our lives to the character of God, to who he is, and the kind of relationship that he wants to develop and build in and through us with him. You see, at the Medina East Campus, uh, we may say it a lot, but we believe it. We so value the word of God because we believe that every single time we open up the pages of scripture, that God is speaking to us. He's communicating to us his heart, his mindset, his love for us, and his desire to fix what's broken in us so that we can live the kind of lives that he wants us to live. And so that is a really special thing. I'm, guys, I'm just thankful uh, that we get a chance to do that together and point ourselves back to God through his word as we do that this morning. So um, again, as Keith mentioned, uh, the past couple of weeks, we have been in a series uh, that we're uh, calling, and we've called, as you could see on the graphics behind me, a series we've called Motives. Motives. And so basically what we've been doing in this series is we have been looking at a specific section in the middle of a broader teaching that Jesus gives throughout Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we've been zeroing in on the middle chapter, this middle chunk of that sermon on the mount that Jesus gives. And basically what we've been saying is we've looked at this, and as we'll continue to look at this uh, chapter throughout this series, we've been kind of exploring the fact that, uh, that Jesus kind of stresses like a certain theme or a set of ideas, or there's like a common thread that weaves or is intertwined throughout what Jesus says in this chapter. And uh, basically, we're looking at that and we're saying that what Jesus is trying to get us to see is that for all the external things and the things that we do in life that are outward, that Jesus is constantly striving to get us to peer behind the externals of the things that we do. And he wants to get our vision and our focus into the heart, the stuff underneath, the, at the level of our motives. 
And so Jesus is gonna continue to hammer home here in Matthew chapter six, the importance of the why behind our what. The why behind our what. In other words, for all of the actions that are played out on the surface of our lives before the watching world, Jesus is wanting us to see that there is something more important underneath, that all of those actions are actually generated or birthed by something underneath at the core of who we are in our heart at the place where our motives live. And so for the past couple of weeks, we took a look at the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter six. And we noticed there that Jesus seems to be stressing the idea of, or warning or cautioning us against the notion of showmanship. Uh, in other words, having the motivations internally to do everything that we do on the outside and the actions in our lives to be done for the approval and the applause of other people so that people can see just how great we are. And I think what's interesting is as we head into this next part of chapter six, Jesus does something very interesting. He pivots a little bit. He's gonna talk about some new things, but the one thing that remains the same is the concept of the eyes, is the concept of vision. So whereas in the first 18 verses, Jesus talks about the eyes of other people in our lives, how they see and perceive us, starting at about verse 19 and going forward, he's gonna shift that to say that we should be concerned with our own eyes and how we see the world and everything in it. And he wants to teach us something, I think, very significant about that. And so we're gonna dive right into this next little chunk. If you brought your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to get those out now or uh, if you have it on your tablet or device, begin your, making your way there. And we are going to take a look at two simple verses today, two simple verses in Matthew chapter six, verses 22 through 23. Matthew 6, 22 through 23. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you here today, that is perfectly fine. We have some Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you choose to access this text that way, you can find Matthew 6, 22 through 23 on page 787 in those Bibles, 787. All right, and so I think I've given you, I've stalled enough, right? So I think I've given you enough time to maybe head out there. Hopefully you're almost there, if not there already. So let's just expose ourselves a little bit to what Jesus has to say about our eyes, the way we see and our vision here in this text. So this is what Jesus says. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, well, that means that your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is interesting to me. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? All right, so if you're looking at this, if you're like me, and maybe you've read this passage before, or maybe it's somewhat familiar to you, or even if you're reading this for the first time, maybe you're a little like me in the inclination that you would have in reading this passage and the assumption that we would likely have when we read what Jesus says here about the eye. And that assumption might be that the eyes, right, are the entry point into our interior like into the very, like deep down in the depths of our heart and soul, the eyes are the actual access point. And so we might think that Jesus is basically saying here, you need to be really careful to avoid 
allowing your eyes to see any morally denigrating or morally questionable content. Because if you do, and if you do that in too great a measure, your eyes are actually going to intake this through the entry point, and that morally questionable content will eventually make its way down to your little heart, and it will pollute and corrupt you at your very core. And so we might assume that this is the case, that this is what Jesus is saying here. And I think there's some reasons, actually, uh, for an assumption if we would read it like this. Um, Anybody in this room, has any of you uh, grown up in children's church? Any any of you grow up in the church? Yeah, I see a few hands. Some of you aren't raising your hands because you're embarrassed, right? No, but so back in the 1980s, we didn't call it Power Kids, which is really sweet and cool. That's a fun way to say it. We just had children's church or kids' church. I know maybe it sounds lame, but I was an 80s child, right? So I grew up in the church and I remember being in children's church and literally every time we would come across this passage, they would encourage us to learn or be taught or to be reminded of a very famous song within children's church. Anybody know what song I'm about to reference, right? That this passage, what it means, they taught us a song and that it meant this. And by the way, if you know it, you can sing along with me. It's gonna be fun, right? What was the song? It was, be careful little eyes what you see. You got it. Be careful little eyes what you see. I'm a conductor now. For the father of looking down in love. Pause. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Right? Boom, boom. Yeah, you got the clap at the end. That was pretty cool. None of the other services did that. You guys are the best. (laughs) Right? So, but that's the idea, isn't it? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because if you take in too many questionable images, that's going to make its way down to your core and you will be a now polluted person, right? It won't be good for you at the level of your core. And actually, we don't need to have grown up in children's church to kind of have these prevailing ideas. They're out there in our culture and they come from this very passage, or at least that kind of reading of this very passage, right? How many of you have heard out there floating in the culture that the eyes are the what to the soul? Right, The eyes are the window to the soul. And so this way of looking at this passage, this approach has been used to implore people to draw like the metaphorical shades over our eyes to prohibit letting in images that might denigrate us or pollute us spiritually. Like what this passage really means for us, or maybe we assume or have been taught, is that you shouldn't watch R-rated movies, right? Don't watch all that media stuff right nowadays. You shouldn't watch R-rated movies or you ought to at least make sure you look away when you see something that is morally questionable or morally reprehensible. Now listen to me. I think that the idea of shielding our eyes from or shielding them from polluting content, I think that is a very good thing. I actually think that's a very biblical thing. You will find plenty of passages in scripture that speak to that very idea. I think doing that is a God-honoring thing because we want to keep ourselves, as Paul would say, pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. We want that, right? But let me ask you, if you are actually going to look and read the eye is the lamp of the body, this may not be what Jesus is particularly saying in this passage, is it? If we read carefully, if we have a vision and a view to what he's actually saying, what does he say the eye is? He says, say it with me, is the lamp, not the window, not the entry point, but a lamp. Now, quick pop quiz for everybody in the room, right? I think we're all going to get this right. What do lamps do? Right. Do lamps absorb or consume or take in light? No. Lamps emit they project out light. 
And so it seems that Jesus is saying is if the eyes, if your eyes are the lamp of the body, instead of your eyes being the shutters or the shades of your eyes being shut to questionable content, instead it seems to be that Jesus is now saying, hey, there's going to be an inner light or an inner darkness that already resides within you and your eyes are actually going to be a projection somehow, some way, of that inner light that no one can see that the eyes are going to be a projection rather than taking something in. And I know this might be a little confusing for us, and now we might be a little stumped. We're like, okay, Jesus, then what are you getting at here if indeed the eyes are the lamp of the body rather than the window to the soul? What are you saying here, Jesus? And I think as we start to wrestle with some of these questions, um, I think we all know, everybody in this room, including online and the live stream, we all know what is necessary right now. We all, I know what you're thinking, and I'm going to say it. We all know that what we need at this moment is a little bit of ocular or ophthalmic history. All of us know that. I, I get it. So I know you guys are smart. I'm just making very transparent and overt what's already going on in your heart. I get it. So And and in other words, what I mean is ocular ophthalmic history. I think what we need here is a little bit of an explanation of the history of how people groups in the past understood the function of the eyes or how vision works. You see, for us who live in a modern 21st century post-scientific revolution kind of world, all of us know, right, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we understand a little bit more of the physics and the physiology of the way things work and how light works and particles and rays. We all know that your eyes are actually, the way you see is by taking in light. And the process goes a little something like this. This is gonna be crude, so please don't hate me, okay? We all know that what we need is a light source, right? Such as the sun or a lamp, but let's go with the sun. We all need a light source, right? And the light source, what does it do? It projects out light rays. The light rays hit on an object such as the pink frosted sprinkled donut from Dunkin' Donuts. I'm not being paid by Dunkin' Donuts. I just really like it, okay? But we all know that the light is going to come down. It's going to hit off this object, this donut. It's going to reflect off the donut, and then it is going to be received by the eyes. Before you talk about vision, let's behold this for a moment, shall we? Dang. That's what they call special right there. So uh, for those of you who don't know, this is our student ministries manager, Dan Miller. I had to get this. I don't know what compelled me to take this photo. It was at Bible camp. There was maybe something about his eyes that was drawing me in. I don't know. But so let's just, let's just put it this way. We have a student ministries manager who really cares about our kids and students because this was taken at Bible camp and Dan was willing to put glittery sparkles underneath his eyes And he probably took about two weeks to wash all that out after Bible camp was done. So he loves our kids, right? But we get the process, right? That there's a light source that emits light, it bounces off an object, and then Dan receives in his eyes the reflected light rays so that he not only is able to see the object, but he's also to interpret the object and know exactly what to do with it, right? Which is eat it. That's what you do with a pink frosted sprinkled donut, right? But here's what's very interesting. This sort of crude way of understanding vision and sight is a relatively recent phenomenon and way of understanding things. Did you catch that? It's relatively recent. What you might not know is that for most of human history, light or sight was not understood as beams or particles or rays that come from a light source like the sun bounce off and are received by the eyes. 
But actually, instead, it was believed that the eyes themselves were like balls of fire that would project out light onto the object that one would view so that, again, the purpose would be for seeing with clarity so that Dan or anyone else who's viewing that object would know exactly what he was supposed to do with it. That's right, the ancient, most ancient people, it wasn't ubiquitous, not everybody held this, but the majority opinion was that this was the way eyesight worked, that light beams were in effect. People believed that the eyes were kind of light generators that enabled people to see, and here's the important thing, to interpret with clarity what they were supposed to do with the object that they viewed. Now, this is so prevailing throughout human history that historians have actually uh, given this approach to eyesight a name. They call it the extra-mission or the emission theory of sight. Now, I got this off the interwebs. I swear it's reputable, but here's a good summary, right? The extra-mission theory or the emission theory is the proposal that visual perception is accomplished by eye beams emitted from the eyes. You're like, this is wacky. I know. The fact that the eyes of some animals, now here's a case, right? Such as cats, think about it would glow in the dark, was provided as evidence of the theory, often described again as a fire that was projected from the eyes. You think that makes sense, right? In pitch black, you can see the eyes of cats. They interpret it as a fire. You and I know that it's the devil that's inside them, right? <laughs> so we know. But this, this theory, this theory was so pervasive, it was held by some really smart and influential people throughout history. It was held by Plato, Euclid, Ptolemy in one variation or another, and Galen, this is really important, the last of whose theories of anatomy and physiology persisted well into the 1500s, well into the 1500s. Now for you and me, we're looking at it, and again, we live in this post-scientific world, and we're like, that's ridiculous. We know so much better now. We know so much better about the way eyesight works, but here's the problem. Now we're starting to think about what Jesus says in Matthew 6, through 23. It seems like he presumes an extra mission or an emission theory of sight. And so you're like, with what we know now, is Jesus wrong? Is Jesus wrong? And furthermore, and I think this is the really important question, if we were going to follow him and his teachings, does that mean that we have to buy into an extra mission theory of eyesight like many of the ancients did? Is that what that means? Now, let me just say this is a conversation that we could go on and on about, but let me just say one thing kind of in response to maybe some of those questions that you might have. Here's, here's what you gotta remember. We gotta remember this every time we open up the Bible. Anytime we read the Bible, we always need to be reminded that the Bible is first and foremost written to an audience and a cultural context that is very, very different from us, very different from us. And so I think what this means is that we always need to consider Jesus's intentions when he teaches to the audience that would have been sitting on this hillside as he issues the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five through seven. You see, I don't think what this means when Jesus teaches this here in Matthew 6, I don't think what this means is that we need to buy in or accept an extra mission theory of sight in order to buy into his teachings. And for that matter, I don't believe that Jesus is really looking to make a statement in this sermon about the physics and the physiology and the nature of our sight. I don't think he's looking to do that. Instead, here's what I would like to invite you to see 
is that there is a constant principle that's taught throughout scripture that the God of the universe, in order to communicate to us, has always decided to bend down. He's always decided to come down to our level to meet us where we're at with what we know and how we understand. Uh, Theologians and scholars have called this idea the principle of divine accommodation. That God, he loves us so much, guys that God would bend down and accommodate where we're at to teach us something. And think about the genius of Jesus here and that heartbeat. Jesus is using a very common way the people in his culture would have understood a physical process to actually point them to a deeper, more important spiritual reality that he wanted to teach them. And I do believe that he wants to teach us as well. All right, so you're thinking, okay, I'm Bob, I'm into that. If that's the case then, all right, let's go back to the passage. What then might Jesus intend to teach when he seems to say that the eyes themselves are a projecting out of some previous inward disposition of the whole body being filled with either something he calls light or something he calls darkness? Well, I think a really helpful place to start is to actually look at two words that appear in this passage that I think are gonna frame some things for us and help us to see this more clearly. And I think the words are the word healthy that appears here in verse 22, and it's contrast or it's converse, the word that appears in verse 23, the word unhealthy. So let's start with the word healthy, okay? So what would it mean for the eyes if indeed the whole body is already filled with either light or darkness, but if, in this case, if it's filled with light, what would it mean for the eyes to be, Jesus says, healthy? Now, here's what I find interesting, is that in our English translations, we trans, uh, many translations have this as healthy, some have it as good, but actually the word that lies behind this in the original language in which the New Testament was written was Greek. The Greek word that lies behind this is a fascinating term, and I want to share it with you. The Greek word behind this is the word haplous. Haplous. You want to say it with me, you know you do. Haplous. Haplous, right, good. I didn't do that very well, sorry. But anyway, so haplous is a fun word because it actually has two components to it. It has a prefix and a suffix. Now, the prefix is this kind of hap idea, which comes from the Greek word hapla, which simply means single, one, unified. And it's a, what's appended to that in the suffix is this plus idea, which gives you the notion of, this is maybe a little strange, right? To braid or to weave something together. As in when my wife will go to one of my daughters and she'll take several tufts, I don't know, uh, aspects of hair, She'll take them and then she will braid them and weave them together. You're like, what the heck are you talking about? What, what does this mean? I actually think it's, it's re- relatively simple. It's more simple than we might realize. It has the idea of there being multiple entities that when you braid, you take those multiple entities and you begin to braid them like my wife with my daughter's hair. You have multiple strands of hair. That's the right word, strands. So you have multiple strands of hair and then what do you do? overlap and you overlap. And the final product is one single braided strand of hair. And so that's why the word healthy at its core simply means singular, out of many, singular, undivided, sincere, whole, or complete. And actually, again, the genius of Jesus. What do our eyes, how many eyes do we have? Or are we supposed to have? I get it, but right, two eyes. But It's only when 
the two eyes are functioning together in the way that God created them and intended, it's only when those two things, when those two images that are received by each respective eye are now braiding those images together, right? We might use the word synthesis in our modern context. When they're synthesizing those two images, they're functioning together to present not two images, but one single coherent image. So Jesus says the healthy eye is the eye that is able to do what the eyes are supposed to do. Take two images and make them one single crystal clear image with clarity. Now the converse is very interesting. The word unhealthy in Greek is poneros. I won't ask you to say that. It's poneros. And poneros has at its core the idea of bad or evil. Now, when we think about evil, we could be easily misled as to what Jesus might be saying here because when we think about evil, typically we're thinking of stuff that's like demonic or satanic or straight from the pits of hell or cats, right? There it goes again. I got cats again. So, and, and while the Bible does indeed use this word to refer to some of those kinds of things frequently, the word itself actually does not necessarily mean evil that way. And especially in this context, it's true. The word means more something like diseased or something that's compromised, something that's divided or it's disordered. The word has this notion of something that is supposed to function in a specific way, in the way that God has intended, but that thing is no longer operating in the way in its original design that God had for it. This is why later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say things like, if the, good, if the tree is good, if its DNA, if its insides are good, then it's going to bear good what? Fruit. And likewise, he says, if the tree is poneros, if it's bad, if it's evil, internally, if its DNA is not functioning the way that it was intended to function, then likewise, the fruit is going to be diseased as well. So if we apply this to the eyes, it has the notion, it's the opposite, right? It is two eyes that are not weaving or braiding those images together into one clear thing that I know what to do with. Instead, you have two eyes that are producing two images that compete with one another. Now, this idea of uh, healthy versus unhealthy as it's presented here by Jesus in this passage has really hit home for me in a very unique and, and, and special way, uh, probably in the last five or six years. And so like you can see, uh, for, the most of my, for most of my life, I wear glasses or I've worn contacts in the past. And uh, many of you, I can even see in the room, and some I can't because you're wearing contacts, many of you share this debilitating syndrome with me, right? It's, it's like our cross to bear, right? Um, and and it's, it's not just the cross to bear to not be able to focus our eyes or to like see blurry images or whatever. It's our cross to bear because we've had to endure like back, back in middle school, middle schoolers calling us four eyes. Man, middle schoolers are ruthless, by the way. And maybe for some of you, you're like, that hurts because you're an adult and a middle schooler last week told you or called you four eyes. <laughs> Nevertheless, that didn't happen to me at all. Like that, that didn't happen last week with a middle schooler, um, not at all. So now check this out. So for me, I've never really, uh, I've never really had a huge problem with the fact that I, I can't see well, like everything is blurry. Like if I were to remove my glasses, I, it's so blurry, I can't see you in the second row here. Like it's that bad, but it's kind of been a whatever it is, what it is sort of thing. It didn't bother me too much. Um, that is until about six years ago, six years ago, I will never forget, I think I will forever have etched in my memory this certain scene that occurred to me six years ago. I, I, I will remember this for the rest of my life. 
And it's so vivid that I just, I could see it. I was driving down I-77 South over there. I was about a mile north of the Route 18 Fairlawn exit. And I remember driving down so vividly and looking out and suddenly, like all of a sudden out of nowhere, I thought, I'm seeing two images of everything side by side. Two images of everything. Like it was scary at first. And then I, uh, I sort of was able to, to quell that or quench that. I, I had a few strategic blinks and I rubbed my eyes a little bit and then eventually I was able to see one image again. And so after a little while, I didn't think too much of it. But then the days went by and weeks went by, months did, years did. And I found myself increasingly, it was increasingly difficult to get the muscles in my eye to be strong enough to produce a single image rather than two. And uh, this is something that progressively got worse and worse and worse. So much so that uh, I had uh, touched base with an ophthalmologist, had gotten some consultations there. And then uh, actually this past February, uh, my ophthalmologist referred me to um, somebody who is called a neurological ophthalmologist. So in other words, a brain and eyes guy, right? How, does the, how do the brain and eyes function together? And uh, so he's doing his evaluation. This guy's a very interesting cat. <laughs> there it is again, third time's a charm. Um, this guy's a very interesting guy and he's doing his evaluation. He's doing the typical thing that uh, you're like, one or two, one or two. And you're like, I'm so sick of this. So he does his evaluation. He's looking at me. And then finally, he's finished, obviously, because uh, I could tell he was finished because he just rolls back in his chair and he looks at me. And then he starts to give me his evaluation and he just starts spewing all this Latin terminology at me that I have no idea what it means, right? And so after about 15 or 20 seconds of him spewing all this Latin information, he could see that my eyes were glazed over, pun intended. So my eyes were glazed over and he just stopped dead in his tracks. He leaned forward and he's like, look, I'm gonna cut to the chase. I'm gonna boil it down for you, ready? Here's what's wrong with you, ready? This is literally what he said. He's like, here's what's wrong with you. He paused and he said, your brain cells suck. (laughs) I I kid you not, your brain cells suck. So I literally laughed out loud because what else do you do? I mean, here's a guy who's probably got multiple PhDs. He's working for the Cole Eye Institute at one of the most prestigious medical institutions in the entire world. And he leans forward and says, dude, your brain cells suck. (laughs) And so then he proceeded to diagnose me with something called diplopia. Diplopia. So diplopia is actually a medical term that comes from two Greek terms that are put together. Don't tell me that Greek isn't important to our lives, right? Okay. So diplopia comes from a prefix of the word, check this out, diplus, which is the exact opposite of haplus, diplus. And then a suffix is appended on that opia, which comes from ops or optics, it's sight. Literally, it means double vision, double vision. And here's what he said to me that I thought was fascinating. He said, actually, the issue with you is not your eyes. The problem is manifesting itself in the way you're seeing. You're seeing two images rather than one. But the real issue is not with your eyes. It's actually with an internal organ that we cannot see. It's the issues with your brain. So to fix, to truly fix diplopia, What you need is not some eye surgery. What you need fundamentally is a transformation of the brain. You need new DNA. You need new DNA. 
And listen, why do I tell you this? This is not a sob story, I promise. And if we want to talk about diplopia after service, I'd be glad to do that. But that's not the purpose. I want us to start seeing what Jesus is trying to say and what I think he's teaching me and hopefully teaching us in light of my story. You see, for all the concern that I've had about my issues with diplopia, let me just boil things down for you for a moment. Let me just quickly introduce you to the diplopia world if you don't struggle with this. Let's take a look at this image here. So common image, I took this picture while I was driving. Well, no, I actually didn't. I was in the passenger seat and I took the picture, but, but nevertheless, it is, I think, an accurate depiction or a portrayal of what I would see when I was driving, right? And keep in mind, this is a still image. So I want you to be thinking, this is the kind of stuff that's constantly changing every second, isn't it? But here's a snapshot, right? And so what do I see? Well, in this, even though it's a grainy picture because I took it with my iPhone, you can still see with clarity you know what to do in this situation. And there are certain factors and objects and variables that are out there that you want to be watchful for and acknowledge. It's not just about seeing this image rightly. It's about knowing what to do with it. So right here, I'm in the rightmost lane. What I have is to my left, two contiguous lanes of traffic with me. What I have is in the far left lane, I have an SUV who's a little closer to me, north-south, Then this car, he's a little further away from me, but he's in the immediate lane, right? I've got about maybe 300, 500 feet ahead of me. I've got a truck. I also know that as I'm passing under Mason Road Bridge, that if I want to get off at the Howell Pinckney exit, it's about three quarters of a mile, and I should start to think about using turn signals and such to get into the off-ramp, right? I also know I have oncoming traffic on a divided highway on the other side of the road. I also know that if I'm really thirsty at Howell Pinckney, there is a Coca-Cola waiting for me at the McDonald's on this billboard, right? So we see this image clear. We know what to do with this. It's second nature to us. We're seeing one. Let me introduce you. This is literally about as close as I can get to introducing to you what I see when my eyes go squirrely. That's bad news. <laughs> I mean, look at it. What, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is the overlap. The problem is the, how the images compete with one another for my attention. My question in this is, How do I know which one is real? Because look, am I in this lane? Is this the rightmost lane? Or is this it? And if this is my rightmost lane, is that car here or is that car there? And I tell you what, you see this image and things come at you so fast, it gets dizzying. It gets confusing. It's so disorienting when you're seeing two images in life and it creates this sense of total confusion, total frustration, and it produces in you a sense of helplessness. Why? I don't know what to do with the world around me. It's cloudy. I'm living in a state of ocular, like vision, darkness. And keep in mind again, diplopia is not something that can be cured. There are some workarounds to help with the problem, but unless a doctor were to be able to fundamentally transform my brain cells, it's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. You see, what a person with diplopia needs is not new eyes. What they need is a new brain. They need new DNA. They need something to be radically transformed on the inside. Now, please... Just apply this to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6, through 23. 
is this really about our physical eyesight? Or is this about something so much deeper that Jesus wants to let us in on and to see? I think Jesus is saying here that you're, you're gonna be able to see the world and everything in it in a profitable way, the way it really is, reality for the way that God intended it. Not when your spiritual eye muscles are fighting harder to produce a single image, but instead, when something inside of you at the core of your very being is utterly transformed and made new by the illuminating light of truth that only Jesus Christ can bring. It's at the level of our, of our motives. That only when there is a fundamental conversion of our hearts and a response to the light of truth and illumination that Jesus brings, will our eyes be able to project such a thing outwardly Catch this, so that we can see everything in a new way, in a way that God intended from the very beginning. Here in Matthew 6, we have a Jesus who is yet again bypassing all the external ways of us trying to work harder in our own righteousness to get ourselves right with God and to fix what we all know is broken about us and our vision. Yet again, we have Jesus who calls himself in John's gospel, the light of the world, who is interested in offering us a powerful transformation and a change at our very core from the inside out. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And we think about the way that even God created everything at the beginning. God said when he brought everything beautiful and good and ordered into being as he created the world, God said, let there be light. And likewise, I think Jesus is pointing us back to the importance that the same God, as the apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has now shown in our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone offers us this inner light of transformation that then helps reorient our eyesight in profound ways, helping us see clearly the world around us, maybe for some of us for the very first time. So if this is the case, right? If that's what Jesus does, if that's what he's pointing us to, that we need his inner transformation before we can see rightly. That if we apprehend that, if we say yes to Jesus and we respond to him in faith, we might ask the question, okay, if he's giving me a new singular focus, a new vision, a new way of understanding reality, why might seeing so clearly and in that way, seeing singularly, why might that be so important for us? I think we all know this is that having 20-20 vision, being able to see singularly and clearly, that's great. It's awesome to be able to see things for the way they truly are. But having 20-20 vision is actually useless if you're not taking the clarity of what you see and using it to interact with what's around you in good, right, and true ways. It's useless. See, after all, having clarity of sight is not just merely being able to make out images Having clarity of sight is so that we can use that to understand and interpret our world, to perceive rightly how the world works, how it works, how we fit, 
and what we're supposed to do with the objects that are in front of us, like Dan with the donut, right? So what exactly then would the healthy eye produce or provide for us that would be so beneficial for us to have that healthy eye in the first place? What would that look like? Well, here again is the genius of Jesus. I think he's already given us an answer to that question. Why would we wanna have proper sight? What are we looking at? How do we leverage it? I think Jesus has already said it. And then he'll reiterate it after Matthew 6, 22 through 23. Guys, look at what Jesus has already said. Don't store up for yourselves, say it, treasures, our money, our material possessions, our stuff, our resources, our time, our skills, everything that God has given us. He says, don't stockpile those things here on earth. Why? Well, there moths and vermin destroy. We we know this, that the stuff around us is here today. It's gone tomorrow. It dissolves. It corrodes. It erodes. And we're thieves breaking and steal. Here today, gone tomorrow. You can't take it with you. It's so easily pulled out from underneath. Jesus said, instead, store up, stockpile yourselves treasures in heaven where there is enduring eternal life. Invest there with what you have in front of you now. Because there, moss and vermin, they can't touch that. There's no decay. There's no death. Thieves cannot break in and steal the great inheritance of new heavens and new earth that God desires for every one of us. Thieves cannot steal that away from you. And then Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is, if you've ever wondered whether you have truly been gripped by the illuminating light of Jesus's truth and the transformation that he's working in your life, if you ever wanted to know, give an indicator or a gauge or a barometer or a dashboard as to where that's at, where do you look? You look at your stuff. You look at your bank account. How do you see those things? How do you leverage those things? Jesus, after the teaching about the eye, then goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. It's like spiritual diplopia. (laughs) Either you're gonna hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you're gonna despise the other. Jesus says, guys, I'm just gonna lay it out for you because I love you too much. You cannot serve God and money and possessions at the same time. You see, the healthy and the undivided eye is the one that looks at material and financial resources, all the stuff that we have access to in life. And it views those things as opportunities to be leveraged for God's glory and for the expansion of Jesus's good kingdom in the world that is pointing toward the treasures in heaven that will be here forever. You see, the unhealthy eye, in contrast, it looks at our stuff, it looks at our money, it has a false sense of security in those things, and it gets dizzy and it gets confused. It's filled with darkness. It sees double. 
The unhealthy eye assumes that every resource in front of it is number one, earned by me, I did that, that's mine. Or is to be used exclusively for me. The evil eye, the unhealthy eye is consumeristic, it's self-indulgent, it's stingy, it's self-absorbed, and ultimately it is these things because it is a division of our allegiances. You cannot serve God and money. But instead, the healthy eye, the eye that has already been illuminated by the light of the world, the truth of Jesus Christ, has been illuminated by that inner light of transformation, that eye is able to view every resource in front of it, number one, as not earned by me, but given by a generous God who would move heaven and earth and give his best resources, throw all his chips into the middle of the pile by sending his one and only son so that we might be free from the corrosion and the erosion of sin and death in our lives. God is so generous. And so the healthy eye, looks at stuff in the same way because it's been transformed by that reality. It asks, man, how can I leverage the stuff around me on Christ's behalf to not only glorify God, but to bring life and flourishing and blessing to other people to whom I have influence or with whom I have influence? And I love this. This is the main reason why so many Bible scholars and Bible interpreters have actually said that the best translation of the word healthy, haplus, that's found in Matthew 6.22, the best translation is with the word generous. The eye is the lamp of the body, something that's happened within you. If your eye is generous with what you have, that means that you have truly been gripped by the light of a generous God who loves you and has given everything for you. I love the way that Dale Allison, a New Testament scholar, summarizes all of this. He looks at this passage and he says, man, we've already seen how the opening statement, the eye is the lamp of the body. It makes perfect sense as a picturesque way of expressing a pre-modern theory of vision. And we have also been able to comprehend the second clause as a statement about the physical eye. But Matthew 6, 22 through 23 undoubtedly has an ethical, ethical thrust. In other words, what action is good, right, and true, as its conclusion proves. One hears a proverbial statement first, which is taken to apply to the physical eye, but by the time the closing words ring out, one realizes that one has heard a statement about higher truths. So the listener is led to rethink the whole of what has been said. The eye is the lamp of the body now becomes a spiritual truth. One's moral, I would say, inward disposition correlates with their religious state, that inward state that they have with either darkness or light within. And when your eye is hapless, he says, when it's healthy, your whole body will be full of light now means this. Please don't miss this. That singleness of purpose, one image, singleness of purpose or generosity. And what that first requires is inner light. And so as the band comes up and as we close things out, as we see maybe a little bit more clearly what I think really Jesus is driving at in this passage, we may ask ourselves, okay, how do you apply this, right, practically? When we walk out of these doors here today, what are we going to do differently? What things can I be thinking that will help me live out the truths that are maybe uncovered by Jesus 
Well, let me actually just start by saying what I don't think Jesus is saying here, or what is not a great application or way of thinking. See, I don't think Jesus looks at us with a wagging finger and a stare and says, your application, guys, is go be more generous. You need to be more generous. Like, buckle up, man, pull up your bootstraps. Give more to that philanthropic organization. If you haven't used that thing in your house for two weeks, you need to get rid of it right now. Or go sell all your possessions all the time. Or give a little bit of a greater percentage to the church. Listen, those all might be really great applications for you personally, but I don't think that is the immediate thing that Jesus wants us to grasp as we think about practicality in this. See, that would, that would be absurd on so many levels, right? Because it would be first absurd from the standpoint of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus repeatedly hammers home the principle that there is nothing that we can do in our own effort, our own energy and power. There's not enough righteousness that we can muster up that would be good enough to please God. And secondly, this flies, it's it's absurd, this idea would be absurd because it flies in the face of what Jesus is actually saying, uh, saying to us in this passage. This is about a conversion first of our heart, about a conversion of our motives, right? It's about undergoing the internal transformation first that will then change the way we see everything and it'll give us clarity, not just wealth, not just money, but literally, it changes the way we see everything. The whole world and reality is different and comes into a unique and dynamic focus when Jesus does the work that he wants to do with us internally. It invites us, I think, instead of be more generous, I think what Jesus is saying here is the practical application. The application is you all have an open invitation to come to Jesus and to do that conversation and that business relationally with him. He's here, he's with us. He's given his Holy Spirit so that we could interact with him on these things that it's not some pastor on a stage who works for a church telling you you should be more generous. That's absurd. But instead, it is an invitation to go to Jesus and ask him the right questions about your life personally. Jesus, Jesus, help me identify. Would you help me identify where my present spiritual vision is at? You can ask questions, Jesus, where am I tempted to see double in life? What around me might be competing for my allegiance that you want to rescue me from and heal me from and view very, very differently? And it's also an invitation for us to invite Jesus to either begin for the first time in our heart or accelerate the transformative work that's maybe already begun of continually changing us so that we can be a more generous people, not for the sake of being generous, but for the sake of more clearly and accurately reflecting in our lives and our conduct and the usage of our resources, the character and the love and the goodness of the one true God who has been generous with us. I think that's the bottom line. The eye is the lamp of the body. It's an indicator. It's an indicator. If your whole body is healthy, or if your eye is healthy, then your whole body is going to be full of light. And so I would implore us, even as the band sings and as we play here in a moment, 
And do that work with the Holy Spirit. Do that work with Jesus. Invite him in. Allow the, the gentle and loving clarity of reality that he brings to grip your heart and convict you in the way that only he can. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in light of the truth of what Jesus has shared with us here. And Father, we should probably first declare just how good you are, how generous you have been with us. That though we all, like sheep, go astray, that we're all dead in our sins, we're all hopeless without you. That it's in your very nature, it's who you are, to be loving and generous with us. So God, thank you. Give us a greater vision of just how generous and loving you are. Because we can't move and manufacture generosity to others unless we've been first by a greater panorama of the depth and the height and the breadth of your love for us. So Jesus, I'm asking, would you please, by your spirit for everyone in the room, would you just do that today? Would you just allow us to gaze upon your goodness and your generosity and marvel and praise and worship you in light of that? And Jesus, we're asking for those of us who are Christ followers in the room, we're just asking that you will do the work by your spirit to help us see where maybe we've drifted away from the core inner light of your truth. And maybe we're starting to see double with the things that we have in life. Help us to come to you freely because we know we have access. And would you please convict our hearts as to where we need to make adjustments that will be consistent with the inner transformation that you're already working in us. Please help us with that. And Jesus, for those who aren't followers of you in this room, Jesus, I'm pleading with you. Would your spirit work in their hearts to such a degree that they would realize that, man, there's nothing that can be done to bring the world into reality and truth apart from you rescuing them and gripping them. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would be strong here and that each and every one of us would do that business with you and that we would respond to you accordingly. We love you. We're just so thankful that you're the generous God that you are. Pray all this in your name. Amen.